0: Uh, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, obviously, and um, we're going to be in this till Easter. And a few weeks ago, I um, talked about this passage that was like a, a snapshot of the entire ministry of Christ. It was um, Matthew 4.23, if you remember. And it says this, it says, Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, it's northern Palestine today, teaching in their synagogues and healing every disease and affliction. So, those are the two things that Jesus mostly spent his time doing, teaching and healing. And Matthew 5-7, through 7, which we looked at last week, is all about authoritative teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And now Matthew 8-9 through 9 is all about authoritative healing. Um, he heals as someone who doesn't even need to touch anybody, uh, simply by saying the word, simply by having the thought. He actually doesn't even say anything. He has the thought, and the centurion's servant is healed. So authoritative teaching, now authoritative healing... And in the first section of authoritative healing, we see these three different people who are healed. Uh, and they're all outsiders. So you've got the leper in verse 2 through 4, the Gentile, non Jew, in verse 5 through 13, and then the woman in verse 14 and 15. All three are outsiders. Uh, women were not allowed in the temple, Gentiles were not even allowed to eat with the Israelites. And lepers could not even really come near someone from Israel. So these are people who are increasingly on the outside. And um, the hard thing about this is that actually it was God who made the rules. In the Old Testament, we call it the ceremonial law. And it was those rules that set up the situation where these people couldn't be a part of Israel fully. Um, And it seems very cruel and harsh. Um, Seems like something God would never do except that it was temporary, and it was all in order to prepare for the mercy that God would bring. It was to show how merciful God was. Um, When I was a teacher, a high school teacher, uh, older teachers told me the very first day, they said, do not smile for an entire month and show absolutely no mercy to your students. So uh, tardies, test scores, absences, no mercy at all. And I said, you know, why would, I, why would I want to do that? Why would I come across as mean? And they said, because that way later on you can actually begin to have mercy and it will be appreciated. Um, and I think there's something like that going on here where these, these rules were always meant to go away. Um, they, they were meant to really be there to highlight uh, the coming of Christ. You can imagine like a banner that says ceremonial law. And then Jesus comes, you know, busting through that like a football team. Um, like the Dillon Panthers or something. And he's you know running onto the field and waving this flag back and forth that says mercy, mercy and grace. And that's what you see in this passage, is Christ coming through these barriers, welcoming in these outsiders. Um, first of all, this this leper, then the centurion, and then the mother-in-law. So I'm going to get really crazy and radical here. I'm going to have three points. Three points tonight. Not the usual two. Um, the leper, Gentile, the woman. So first, the leper... Verse 2, behold, that's uh, Matthew's word for just look, look at that, it's incredible. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, and literally that says, and worshipped him. And he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy is not the same thing as Hansen's disease, that's part of leprosy, Um, that's where you lose... Uh, all feeling in your extremities, and you therefore end up often like hitting things with your fingers and toes, and it, they begin to rub down so that 's part of leprosy, but that 's not all leprosy was it It was kind of a catch all term for a lot of skin diseases, um, and almost all of them were very painful and very chronic, and they were very isolating because they were contagious and so oftentimes they would disfigure a person and they would always isolate a person because again, the ceremonial law said. These people are unclean. Um, And so you can imagine this guy, this leper, as a, I don't know, like a teenager. Think think of him as like 13 or whenever they found out that this was happening or it was going to be chronic. And you can just think of him and how at some point he had to stop hanging around his friends and then eventually even his family, even his parents. And so somewhere along the line, he just became completely isolated. The lepers could spend time with other lepers, but that was about it. So this is a a terrible situation. And now imagine, you know, 20 or so years later, he sees Jesus coming towards him. And, you know, Matthew doesn't really tell us why or what did he know, what did he see in Jesus, but... He does tell us that the leper just made a beeline right for Christ. That he knew there was some power and there was some mercy in this particular person. In verse 2 it says, he came towards him. He sensed something about him. And then it, it says it, he knelt down before him. He literally, he, again, he worshipped him. And I love this combination of uh, deference on the one hand and then boldness on the other hand. So he says, he says if it be your will, he comes right up to him uh, and, but he begins with this uh, kind of humble deference, if it be your will. So he doesn't name it and claim it or demand it or expect it. Um, he, he simply says, if, you know, if it be your will. Um, he knows he doesn't deserve the healing. But then he's also very confident where he says, you can make me clean. I know that you can make me clean. You can do anything. He acknowledges his omnipotence. And so he's very bold about coming to Jesus. And of course, a leper should not be approaching a Jewish person, much less a famous rabbi. But he feels some reason, uh, some kind of confidence to do that with Jesus. And so he's bold, but Jesus is even bolder. Uh, The leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will be clean. Just two words. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean. And it says in verse 3, that he stretched out his hand, which is not the best translation. It says, uh, literally, he, he reached out and he grabbed the leper. So, he, you know, the leper, you can imagine, was very tentative about this touching thing. Uh, just years and years of um, kind of muscle memory that you don't do that. You never approach anyone with your hands or anything. And then Jesus, seeing that, just reaches out and he grabs him, um, breaking through that barrier. Um, and, and so eager to heal. Immediately, verse 3, his leprosy was cleansed. So eager to heal. He didn't have to touch him, of course. We know that from the centurion story. But he was communicating something. That he uh, was breaking through that barrier. He was welcoming in this outsider. And his, his eagerness to heal is way greater than our desire to ask for healing. Uh, his zeal for our well-being is just mind-blowing. Because all these expectations in this society about uh, a rabbi and a leper, he just completely obliterated. The, the barrier between God and unclean people, he destroyed it. He demolished it. He raised it to the ground. And you can imagine the disciples, the horror on their face as they saw this leper moving towards Jesus. And then even worse, when Jesus actually touches him. And they probably thought that that made Jesus unclean. But it just made the leper clean. Jesus wasn't changed at all. And that, that touch... Between Jesus Christ and this leper, really it changed all of history. Because um, as one famous uh, theologian historian Ernst Lohmeyer said, historically Christianity is the only world religion that has everywhere accepted lepers. It's just become part of the nature of the faith of Christ that this kind of thing happens. And so all the disciples, although they were reluctant at first, they learned from the master that this is how we treat lepers. And they have always done so. We have always done so in our best moments, in our most authentic moments. And so uh, the leper comes to Christ looking for healing. He's healed. But I don't know if he expected uh, all that Jesus would give him, which is not just his uh, body back, but his entire life. Um, all of his friends back. And so he says in verse 4, and this is so merciful, he says, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. And that is um, basically saying, I want you to go back into society fully. I want you to show the priest that you have no more leprosy, that you're totally clean, and therefore the priest will tell everyone that you can go back into your home, you can go back into the temple, and you're fully restored to Israelite society. And as I was reading this story, um, for some reason, uh, a song came to mind um, by Elvis Costello. It's called The Human Touch. And I, I know in that song he says, I need, I need, I need the human touch. That's why I thought of the song. I need, I need. I mean, I was thinking about The Leper and how that could be in his head. So I, I, I couldn't remember any more lyrics other than that. So I Googled it. And when I typed in The Human Touch uh, as a Google search, all these other songs came up Nina Simone, uh, Howard Jones. Joe Jackson, uh, Rick Springfield, I don't know if you remember that one, early 80s, I listened to that one, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that song, we all, we all need the human touch, we all need the human touch, I need it, I need it too, and then Bruce Springsteen, um, in a world without pity, do you think I'm asking too much, I just want something to hold on to and a little of that human touch, and I thought, why all these songs, and that's just a few of them, there are more, uh, why all these songs? why so many uh, writers writing lyrics and music about the human touch. And I don't think it's all sexual. I know that might be in your mind. That was in the back of my mind. You know, that's what the human touch is about. I don't think it's that. If you look at the lyrics, it's more than that. It's more of just a desire to overcome that barrier between two human beings, that physical barrier, just for an embrace. Just for some kind of, like the leper, I mean, imagine how he yearned for just someone to touch him. In, any, in the most innocent way, um, I know that it 's like, incredibly healing for, for even a little tiny baby to be just to be touched um, for all of us. probably lowers our blood pressure, but um, jesus didn 't just offer the touch then he, he 's offered it ever since through his people, through the sacrament, through his body, with us, we are his body, and as we um, hold out our hands and receive the bread and you know, even take it into our mouths and the wine, uh, that in itself is part of this, the physicality of Christianity. It's not a religion of the brain. It's a religion of the body and the, the, the movement and, and, you know, embracing one another, uh, laying hands on people to heal them, just laying your hands on someone to heal them um, and praying for them. It's a very powerful thing. Um, not practice nearly enough. Uh, just patting each other on the shoulder, on the back, Uh, hugging someone, um, you know, we need to do these things more. I mean, I'm a little squirrely about things like that. I I admit that. I think Americans today, um, especially, uh, waspish kind of Americans are very, um, nervous about touch. And, and so we've got to be, we've got to be the ones that like, we've got to practice this more intentionally. Um, so don't all come hug me tonight, but I think we need to be more about that kind of thing. Um, Because the the power of the leper and Jesus simply touching is incredible. So that's the first first character. Now the Gentile. Um, The Gentile wasn't so much unclean as he was hated. Absolutely hated. So it says in verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, that was kind of the base of his ministry, this little seaside town, Capernaum. So he goes into Capernaum. The leper's actually on the road from the Sermon on the Mount down to Capernaum. He meets the leper there, or the leper meets him there. But now, instead of uh, a leper, we have a centurion once again coming forward to him. Which is again remarkable that um, a centurion would come towards Jesus, this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi. I'm sure that as he saw him coming forward, Jesus probably imagined he was about to be arrested. He probably flinched or stepped back or something like that because... If you know anything about centurions, they were the commanders of thousands of uh, Roman soldiers. Um, they um, were the enforcers of the Roman Empire. They were the closers. They were, they were feared for their brutality and their coldness um, and their rigor. And they were also respected for their bravery and their competence. And, and you can kind of imagine, um, like if you're a Carolina fan, imagine like Coach K you know, walking up to you and then getting down on his knees. It's kind of like this weird combination that Jesus would have felt of, this guy is kind of my enemy, and yet I also respect him, and now here he is on his knees asking me for help. Verse 5, the centurion appealed to him. He appealed to him, so he's, um, he's in a position of supplication. He calls him Lord, which, you know, could mean simply like, sir... But it could also mean a lot more than that. And probably does. Because uh, he asks Jesus for healing. He says, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And then at that point, I think Jesus just cuts him off. Doesn't even, doesn't even let him end the sentence. Doesn't let him ask for anything. Uh, it's like, my servant is lying paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus says, I will come. And I will heal him. I mean, he knows what the centurion wants. might have known that before the centurion got to him. And um, Jesus completely ignores the barrier. He's impatient to get to the healing. And I love how the centurion knows that he doesn't even have to have Jesus come to his house. That Jesus can just simply think it and say it. And uh, that his servant is healed. And I think that's why it's pretty clear that the servant, when saying Lord, meant more than just sir. uh, That he meant something enormous and hard for us to even calculate or imagine but the same deference and boldness that you saw with the leper is also there with centurion so he says in verse eight i am not worthy um to have you come under my roof there's that humility about himself i'm not worthy but then there's also this boldness about jesus only say the word and my servant will be healed kind of like the leper i know you can heal me Only say the word, and my servant will be healed. This combination of humility and boldness. And I think when a person, a a human, meets Jesus, there's always that combination of, on the one hand, it kind of breaks you and you say, I'm not worthy. Um, But you're also not just like groveling, because you also have this sense of only say the word. There's like a daring, there's a confidence, uh, there's there's a boldness to it, as well as the humility. And we go wrong when we emphasize either one too much, Without the other um, I don't know if you've met Christians like that where you kind of say I can't tell whether she is really arrogant or incredibly humble like they sometimes it seems like this and sometimes it seems like that I was once teaching at uh, st. Anne's Belfield school in Charlottesville a really good private high school and this um, Korean teacher uh, first first day for him um, we went around and introduced ourselves to one another all the teachers sitting around a conference table and this guy said, uh, my name is June And uh, I'm a very talented teacher And there was a really awkward pause Because you don't say that kind of thing um, People were looking at each other you know, Thinking, what is, who is this guy? And then he said um, Because God has blessed me with a gift of teaching And you realize you know, he's, he's not arrogant um, He's confident He knows that God is with him He knows that God is powerful But it's, it's a gift He's humble and uh, part of me thought, I'm so impressed, and then part of me thought, who in the world is this guy that he would say that? But the, the way that God assesses a faith like that is to marvel. And this is really a strange thing, because the word marvel is not used of Jesus, other than this very moment. Uh, it's a word that uh, means he was astonished, he was taken aback. He kind of maybe even stepped back, like, couldn't believe what he had seen there. The the faith of the centurion is so impressive to him. Truly, verse 10, I have not found such a faith in all of Israel. It was like he saw some kind of exotic bird, like a golden pheasant or Hawaiian crow, or something that he never expected to see. So beautiful that he could not believe what his eyes were seeing. He marveled. There's nothing, it seems, that uh, Jesus valued any more than that kind of faith. Where the centurion like, I'm not worthy, but I know that all you have to do is think it and my servant is healed. This humble boldness. And so uh, the question I think that raises for us is uh, just what is the nature of your faith? If you have faith. And of course, um, it's not to be expected that in a room this size there would be faith In every heart. Um, We want people to come here who don't have faith, but um, this is what faith looks like if you're not sure. Uh, It's that combination that's hard to really describe other than humble boldness, but it doesn't make sense unless you see it, where you have this incredible understanding of his ability to heal you, and yet you're also very aware that you don't deserve it, and that he's not, like, really um, indebted to you because you have faith in him. And, um, like, you're not doing him some huge favor by having faith in him. And that it has nothing to do with your worthiness or your status or anything. Because these were people that were completely ignored by the, by the world, the, the, the leper. And then this woman, last the last character here, this woman... Uh, in verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. And when Jesus entered that house, that, that would be the person least likely to be noticed. Because, um, A, women were just not noticed back then. They were often dismissed or ignored. And they were kind of like the furniture in the room. You just They just weren't someone you acknowledged. And, B... This is a mother in law, which just isn't today. Back then, you know, there were jokes about mother in laws. Apparently, the Roman uh, satirist Juvenal said that one cannot be happy while one's mother in law is still alive. So, the mother in law jokes were there as well as today. And, you know, Peter was probably like maybe trying to hide her from Jesus. You know, she's sick and it's his mother in law, he's kind of embarrassed by her. Um, But it says in verse 14, two active intentional verbs. He entered the room and then he saw her. So it wasn't just like he happened to, his eye just happened to fall on her. I think he was looking and he saw her. And she's the one that he was interested in. He scanned the room. He focused on her. He went to her. And it says he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. And I love how it's like this uh, just instinctual response to his healing, to his breaking through the barrier that she would want to serve him. Jesus didn't have to get up in her face or pump her up or make some kind of strong exhortation. I think just being healed and noticed and loved, being an outsider, someone uh, who would never have expected this important rabbi to come to her, much less touch her, much less heal her, that was enough. God crashing into her life. And breaking through barriers she would never expect it. Being an ex-outsider uh, was enough. And so again, verse 15, she just rose up and began to serve. And I think that's just what healed outsiders do, is they serve. Someone who was a Christian, what we believe is that I was, I was lost. I was like a lost sheep. I was out there in the cold, and then Jesus came and found me, and he brought me in. Um, You know, like that phrase, Davos, when he uses that phrase, all in, like, are you all in? I don't know what exactly he means by that. But um, I think there's something about that here, about being all the way in to Jesus and and into the circle of disciples and followers. But really, primarily, what he's calling them into from the outside into into his life would be um, into the very life of God himself. Like, that's why Jesus came. Yes, the church, that's important. Um, other people, important, bringing us in to the life of other people. Like the leper being brought into community for the first time. When I became a Christian, kind of felt that way for me. I, I was brought into community. That's very important. But even more important is the sense that these people were brought into the life of God. Uh, there's a term that the uh, early church theologians used. Uh, they're called the Cappadocian Fathers. Gregory the uh, Nazianzus, and um, the the term is perichoresis. So it's uh, P E R I, and then uh, choresis is C H O R E S I S. If you Google that, you will see images of uh, ancient art of these three people that look like they're dancing together, because it, it literally means a dance. And that you that word was used. Um, to explain how the, the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were like three people dancing around. So when we Christians talk about the one God, we're talking about one God who is somehow a dance within himself. And the idea of, of Jesus coming out of that uh, dance and entering our world, where nobody knows how to dance, coming kind of off the, you know, the dance floor, that's, that's what it means that he's bringing us in from the outside. Uh, notice what um, Jesus tells a centurion about how everything is going to end. The, the things are going to all come to an end with this picture. Many will come from the east and west, and in verse 11, and recline at table in the kingdom of heaven. So it's a wedding feast. Reclining, that's the way they used to, to eat these meals back then, they would lie back on uh, these pillows, they had all this great food in front of them. The wedding feast lasted like a week. There was tons of dancing. That was a really important part of it, is all this dancing. And so you've got these people coming in from the east and west, places like Winston-Salem or Nagoya, way away from Israel, east and west. And, and Jesus says they're all going to come in and join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who have been there a long time, like thousands of years, they're waiting for us, and just pouring into this huge wedding reception. And again, what happens at wedding receptions? There's always dancing. And um, it's one of the reasons I don't usually like wedding receptions. But I remember the first time um, I was dragged into dancing at a wedding reception. I was, uh, I was like 21 years old. And it was uh, my sister-in-law's wedding reception. And I remember Margie looking at me, my wife, and she stopped dancing. And she came out and grabbed me and pulled me in. And it was, it was terrifying. still is. But um, that's what... God is doing for us. He's he's costing himself enormously. He is uh, he is leaving that to come and get us and find us. And uh, it says in verse sixteen that the the healing the healing of these people was very costly to him. And I don't understand this exactly. I know that uh, in verse sixteen he's quoting Isaiah fifty three, the suffering servant. And if you know much theology, you know that Isaiah 53 is about how Jesus bore uh, the punishment that we deserve, and that he was, uh, he was bruised for our iniquities, um, that uh, the punishment we deserve fell upon him. That's what Isaiah 53 is about, but what Matthew is creatively doing here is saying that when Jesus was healing people, somehow their lack of sickness became him being sick, so his he was getting their diseases somehow into himself. Because look at what it says in 16. He cast out spirits, he healed all who were sick. And that action fulfilled what Isaiah had been talking about hundreds years earlier, that he took our illness and bore our diseases. And again, I, theologically, I don't know exactly what to do with that. But I do know that part of the, the great uh, substitutionary atonement, is what we call it, so part of that atonement is that our diseases are healed, and he becomes diseased. And I want to end by reading this little section from the song. Uh, it's one of my favorite Christmas carols. And um, after I read this, I'm going to ask John to come up and, and serve the Lord's Supper. But it's called, uh, Tomorrow Shall Be My Dancing Day. And again, I would really encourage you to, to Google this uh, Get the, listen to this song, and then look at the lyrics. They're absolutely incredible lyrics. I'm just reading you a few stanzas. Um, it's beautiful music, and here are two of the stanzas. Here are some of the words. It's Jesus speaking, first person. In a manger laid and wrapped, I was, so very poor. This was my chance between an ox and a silly poor ass. That's a donkey. This was my chance, between an ox and a silly poor ass, to call my true love to my dance. And I think that maybe the author was thinking about perichoresis, I don't know, but um, the last last stanza is this, he says, um, and then on the cross hanged I was, where a spear my heart did glance, there issued forth both water and blood to call my true love. To my dance. Amen.